This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. So far, in the class, we have looked at the early church life, church organization and worship. We then looked at the apostolic fathers, some of the basic ideas of the early, early writers. And then we looked at the very graphic persecution that the church underwent in the second century. And then we come tonight, our fourth major topic are what I've called the perversions of Christianity. Now, I'm not sure this is the best word to use to say perversions. Uh, it is true that perversions did take place. Uh, in some cases, it might be better to talk about deviations. But whatever word we use, these are departures from Orthodox Christianity that I want to talk about for a while this evening. Now, there are two parts tonight, basically. What I want to do is I want to look at first the attacks on Christianity, intellectual, religious attacks, and then secondly, how Christians responded to these intellectual attacks upon the teaching of Christianity. So first, let's look at the perversions of Christianity. We are now in a intro. The Christians of the second and third century had to fight what every military strategist, and Tommy, you can verify this for me. The Christians of the second and third century had to fight what every military strategist tries to avoid, a two-front war. I think that's probably pretty obvious. The two fronts that the church was fighting for, its, uh, fighting for itself was first, it was fighting to preserve its existence. And, of course, that makes a lot of sense when there's a great deal of persecution going on. They were fighting to stay alive. And particularly, that was the case because the Roman state was trying to destroy it. And the other front was in the domain of ideas. The church was fighting to preserve its theological, doctrinal identity. And while there were attacks, physical attacks from the outside by the Roman state, there were subtle, insidious attacks from the inside, more or less, attacking the theological foundation of the church. Now, the early converts to Christianity came from two major backgrounds, and they're very obvious. The first is a Jewish background, and the second background was Greek culture. And the fact is, and this I'm sure will come as no surprise, that many of the early converts carried 
their old ideas over into their new faith more or less. I don't think that should surprise us. And I want to stop here for just a moment and point out that this is a point at which church history has a lot of contemporary relevance for us. Because are we not in the middle of culture wars, Christians and non-Christians? And aren't we always, and haven't we always before, had to do battle with the culture in which we find ourselves? This is a very relevant question, and I hope as I go through, you think about this a little bit. How we have to maintain our faith in an alien and, in fact, a, a culture that is anti-Christian. And then ask ourselves this question. How much has the outside culture, the outside world, infiltrated the church? How much has it infiltrated our thinking, our ideas about music, psychology, preaching, education, fast foods, See, I think we are a culture of convenience. And fast food is one cultural expression of our insatiable desire for convenience. And how much and to what degree have those kinds of cultural things infiltrated our thinking and infiltrated the thinking of the church? Well, although the early church didn't have to worry about fast food, uh, or those kinds of things. Uh, they too had to think about the degree to which the alien culture infiltrated their church. So this is a very, very relevant kind of question. And I encourage you to, to think about this as we go through. So, early Christians whether they be Jewish, from a Jewish culture, or from a Hellenistic Greek culture, it's almost inevitable, isn't, isn't it, that some of those ideas would creep into the church as they became converted. And there were other folk who were out there, and they were trying to say, Christianity is intellectually defensible. And so they tried to give a reasoned, and let me underscore that word, reasoned defense of the faith. They wanted to be intellectually respectable, don't we all? The point here is that the threat of the infiltration of alien and indeed pagan ideas, the infiltration of those ideas into Christianity, were very real in the early church, just like they are real in the 20th century 1994 church. Are you stirred up a little? Anyway, B, Jewish perversion. And again, I hope this word isn't too strong. I don't mean it to be offensive. Over against the Judaizing tendencies in the Christian church, you'll recall in Acts 15 that the Jerusalem Council met and they reached this basic conclusion. Christians were free, particularly from the ceremonial demands of the Old Testament law. And indeed, the Old Testament law was not a... the fulfillment of those ceremonies was not a requirement for salvation or to be a Christian. But there still were Christians 
early on, Jewish Christians who wanted to include a strict observance of the Old Testament law and to have that be an essential part of Christianity. We see it in Acts 15. It was already a problem. And there were various groups. Uh, I'll mention two tonight. These are folks who, particularly after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., uh, there were some folks who, who were self-consciously Christian, self-consciously Jewish, and they wanted to move away from an exclusively Jewish situation. And so they moved east of the Jordan River. Two groups. The first group, and I've got them in the wrong order here, are the Nazarenes. A small group called the Nazarenes. Now I hesitate to think of this particular group as uh, those who have perverted Christianity. Uh, perhaps they did in some measure. Let me go on. These were those Jewish Christians, uh, particularly in the area of Syria. Uh, they continued until the 4th century. They believed that they should, that Christians, particularly Jewish Christians, ought to maintain the Jewish law, the Mosaic law. So they want to combine their Judaism with their Christianity. But, in, way, in one way, they were very distinct from Judaism because they affirmed the divinity of Christ. He was the promised Messiah as far as the Nazarenes were concerned. They affirmed the law, and yet they affirmed the deity of Christ. They prayed for and hoped for, in the third place, for the conversion of their countrymen the conversion of Israel. They had hoped for that. And they looked for the speedy return of Christ who would come and they had hoped establish a literal millennial kingdom on earth in Israel. They were looking for that. They were hoping that Jesus would come again very, very soon. And although they stressed the importance of the Mosaic Law, Yet they never denounced Paul, and they never renounced the Gentiles. So what were the Nazarenes? It's too strong to say they were heretics. But they were separatist Christians. Maybe a better way to talk about the Nazarenes. Uh, they held, and you know, it's always very difficult to talk about what are the essentials, because... That is always hard. But they did believe in the deity of Christ, that He was a promised Messiah, and they must believe in Him by faith. Well, there were other Jewish groups. A second group I want to talk about, the Ebionites. The Ebionites. The term Ebionite is a word from the Hebrew, and it means the poor people. Uh Aren't we all? Yeah. Uh, originally, this term, Ebonite, was a general term to refer to all Jewish Christians. But then it became much more uh, narrowly descriptive of a particular group of Jewish folk who were uh, adapting Christianity. Uh, you find, for example, Eusebius. I think I have a, 
a comment from Eusebius about the Ebionites, if I can find it very quickly. The Ebionites, they were appropriately named by the first Christians in view of the poor and mean opinions they held about Christ. They regarded him as plain and ordinary, says Eusebius, a man esteemed as righteous through growth of character and nothing more, the child of a normal union between man and Mary. And they held that they must observe every detail of the law by faith in Christ alone. And a life built upon that faith, they would never win, would never win salvation. So that gives you just a very quick insight, according to Eusebius, of a group called the Ebionites. And there were various kinds of Ebionites. Uh, we can discern two kinds. You can call them the hardcore and the moderates, or the rigid Ebionites and the moderate Ebionites. Let me just detail point by point some of the distinctive ideas that characterize, first of all, the hardcore Ebionites. First, they demanded that all, both Jews and Gentiles, observe the Old Testament law for salvation. These are the more rigid Ebionites. Their Jewishness is showing at this point. Yes. They believed that you needed to hold, maintain the Old Testament law in order to be saved. All the ceremonial aspects of the law, you had to do them all in order to be saved. Just, it's a very works-oriented kind of view of salvation. And what do they believe about Jesus? Well, Eusebius tells us that. Jesus was a mere man. And he became the Messiah by virtue of his complete fulfillment of the law. He earned the right and title of Messiah. And again, he was still just a natural person born from the union of Joseph and Mary. They also very strongly rejected the writings of Paul. Paul was a heretic as far as these hardcore Ebionites were concerned. Paul was an apostate and a heretic. Uh, they were primarily interested in terms of New Testaments, uh, the Gospel of Matthew. They felt that was useful for them. And then they also believed in a millennial reign in, in uh, Jerusalem. So they're anti-Paul. They're pro-Old Testament law and Jesus was just a man. Those are the rigid Ebionites. The more moderate Ebionites Yeah, we're talking 2nd century. A late 1st, early 2nd century, moving into the 2nd century. They, they, they do continue to exist various pockets of Ebionites into the 4th century. I mean, this, you know, if you think about the early church, this is the most logical thing in the world. People who were Jews, they hear about Jesus, they like what they hear, 
and they follow, start to follow Jesus, more or less. But they retain some more and some less their Judaism. I, I, I mean, this to me is, is very, very logical. This is what you'd expect to find, and in fact, we do. Well, they, they, they didn't like that part. <laughs> They're not unlike Marcion, whom we'll talk about a little later. You know, there were certain parts. So they didn't hold to the divine expression of Scripture? No. At this point, it's it's unclear uh, to what... And there's, I, need, I need to also say that, that our information about the Ebionites is, is somewhat fragmented. When you're going back 2,000 years, uh, we don't have all of the facts. We have bits and pieces. What we have basically are people like Eusebius. We have a few of these guys who lived a few centuries later who tell us about these groups. And so they're selective and their information is limited as well. So, you've got the rigid Ebionites and you've got the more moderate Ebionites. How are they more moderate? Well, a couple of ways. First, only the Jewish Christians, they said, had to obey the Old Testament law. If you were a Gentile Christian, then you were not under any legal obligation to maintain the Old Testament law. So Gentiles got off easy when it came to the Old Testament law. And Jesus, they said, these more moderate Ebionites, was virgin born. There were some Ebionites who did talk about his miraculous birth but they still wanted to maintain that he was a creature. He was created. So they are not entirely willing to see Jesus as the second person of the Trinity, uh, as God incarnate. They are unhappy with that. They're willing to give him a special status, but not divinity. And they too don't like Paul. Paul is not their kind of guy. Now, was there a question? So why are they called Well, as Eusebius says, they're called poor by the Christians because they have such a poor view of Jesus. Okay? That's what Eusebius says. That's sort of why I read that little section. Uh, Eusebius feels like that the word poor applies to them because they have such a low, uh, poor view of who Jesus really was. What happened to them? Records are scarce. Uh, we know, and I mentioned this earlier, they tended to live east of the Jordan River. They stay for about three centuries and then fade. One little tidbit. Uh, one scholar on the early church speculates, and I want to underscore that word, speculates that it was in the seventh century some form of Ebionitism that Muhammad encountered in the 7th century and was therefore influential in the development of Islam. Now, the great irony of that is to think that Jewish Christianity gave birth to Islam. The irony there is, I think, rather strong. Brian. Which one of these, if any of them, were the circumcisers? I'm not particularly talking about those groups. I mean, it could apply to either one of these, either the more rigid or the more moderate. Certainly, we do find Judaizers early on. 
But then even after the apostolic period, these kinds of ideas still continue in various forms. And in fact, continues at least for a couple of three centuries after, uh, after the apostolic age ends. No, I think the thing we need to appreciate is there were various expressions of this attitude. And some, as I say, took it much more seriously than others, or took it with a more rigid view, and others took a less rigid view. I mean, this is, again, this is the kind of thing you would expect to find. People are grappling. Am I more Jewish? Am I more Christian? How does Jesus fit in with my Judaism? I mean, those are, are, are the kinds of things people are grappling with early on. Okay, let's move right along here to Gnosticism. Fun stuff, these Gnostics. This goes right along with what we've been saying so far is that we need to appreciate that this era, culturally and intellectually, is a period of synergism. There are all kinds of synergistic tendencies. What do I mean by synergistic tendencies? It's the idea of mixing ideas from one group and another group into a third kind of religious or ideological perspective. A mixing of ideas. And early 2nd century is a synergistic period. And this is a, a cultural pattern at the turn of the, into the 2nd century. And what you find, even apart from Christianity, are pagan religious ideas being absorbed and integrated into some of the philosophical ideas of the Greeks. So there is a meeting of of pagan and uh, pagan religious ideas and philosophical ideas of the Greeks. Philip Schaff, for example, thinks that there are evidences of mixing of Greek philosophy and Buddhism in some of the more oriental mystical religions. He doesn't elaborate, he just says as an example of this mixing of ideas. So, then again, it's not entirely surprising that some enterprising persons took the ideas of Christianity and absorbed and harmonized those ideas with Greek philosophy and some of the Oriental religions. It's not surprising then, is it, that some enterprising individual would try to combine Christianity, we're in a synergistic age, combine the ideas of Christianity with some Greek philosophy and some oriental religious ideas. In Gnosticism, this syncretistic tendency was to amalgamate those three ideas, oriental religion, Hellenistic philosophy, with some Christian ideas with a purpose, with a view toward establishing a universal religion. I'll say that again. In a very broadest sense, Gnosticism is syncretistic and it's trying to mix and synchronize oriental religion Hellenistic philosophy with Christianity the word Gnosticism uh, has to do with a particular Greek word gnosis or knowledge and so in the most basic sense Gnosticism refers to a deep uh, 
profound knowledge of divine things. It's a knowledge that only a few special people have and the rest aren't bright enough or energetic enough to get it. It's that we few have this special gnosis, this special knowledge, a deeper knowledge of divine things. So that just orients you very quickly to what we're talking about. It's a a syncretistic kind of religion. Okay, origins. Where did it come from? Well, just like we can see evidences of Jewish Judaizers in the New Testament, we can see evidences of Gnosticism even in the New Testament period. For example, Paul seems to be combating some form of Gnosticism in Colossians, for example. Scholars speculate that uh, he may be combating Gnosticism in Colossians. Sometimes they also argue in the pastoral epistles as well. One speculation is that Gnosticism has Jewish roots, particularly in uh, the Alexandria, Egypt community of Jews. But that's, again, speculative. What I find a little more interesting is the fact that early Christian writers such as Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, and Eusebius, they want to find the roots of Gnosticism and trace it to Simon Magus, that is, the one whom Peter rebuked in Acts chapter 8. Simon Magus, is that not on here? S-I-M-O-N-M-A-G-U-S. This is what, in Acts chapter 8, read the story, you can read the story there. But this is what Eusebius says, talking about Simon the Magus. As faith in our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ was now spreading in all directions, the enemy of man's salvation in a wily attempt to capture the imperial city in time brought their Simon, who was mentioned earlier, and by lending his own weight to man's artful impostures, took possession of many people in Rome and led them astray. This we learn from Justin. He goes on. Simon, we are given to understand, was the prime author of every heresy. From his time to our own, those who follow his lead while pretending to accept that sober Christian philosophy, which through purity of life has won universal fame, are as devoted as ever to the idolatrous superstition from which they seem to have escaped. They prostrate themselves before pictures and images of Simon, that is his followers, and his companion, Helen. They worship him with incense, sacrifices, and libations. And on and on. So, the point here is Eusebius identifies Simon as a bad guy. And it's generally understood, Justin Martyr and Irenaeus specifically identify Simon as the originator of Gnosticism. Justin Martyr tells us, and I just alluded to what Eusebius says, is that Simon, after his death, and even during his life, was worshipped as the high God. 
and his companion Helen was thought to be the mother of all things. Gnosticism seems to continue up through about the 6th century in one form or another. Exponents of Gnosticism. Who are the main characters? Whatever the origins were in the 2nd century, it is directly linked, that is Gnosticism, to those who claim to have some association, some revelation from Christ. The three most prominent exponents were, and I'll mention three persons, Saturninus, Saturninus, he was active in Syria, and he seems to have actually been a disciple of Simon. Saturninus. Basilides, who was active in Alexandria, Egypt. And the most famous and most influential of the Gnostics was Valentinius, who was also an Alexandrian. And all of these persons are active early 2nd century toward the end of the 2nd century. Yes? Valentius, I'm sorry. Valentius. Sometimes called Valentine. Okay. Apparently, Assyria. Mm -hmm. The other two are from Alexandria, Egypt. Now, Valentius is especially significant. We'll probably focus a little more on him and his ideas because he is really the sort of the, the main uh, example of Gnosticism. Anyway, he was born in Egypt, educated in Alexandria, and then in about 140 A.D. decided to go to Rome. Twenty years later, in 160 A.D., he left Rome because he'd come into conflict with the Christians there. So those are the three big guns. Now let's look at the theology. And you need to buckle up for safety because this is, this is interesting stuff. The theology of Gnosticism. The theology of Gnosticism. Now, one of the things you need to, to appreciate about Gnosticism, this very syncretistic religion, all these different, borrowing from all kind, from Oriental religion, Greek philosophy, and so on, to come up with a, a universal religion. And one of the basic ideas they are trying to address is the problem of evil. How did evil get here? Particularly if God, whom everyone agrees is good, how did evil get here? So they are focused on theodicy. Do you know what theodicy is? It's an explanation for evil, for the origin of evil. Is that on there? Theodicy. T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. It's a good word to know. Not only for my exam. Hint, hint. <laughs> Suddenly there is interest. Theodicy. T-H... Theodicy. T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. Theodicy. What is it? It's an, a, 
an attempt to explain the origin of evil. So a good word, it's a word that you'll come across in your readings, particularly if you read theology and so forth. You need to know that word. Well, the Gnostics are trying to figure out how God who is good, how can we understand that and yet recognize there's evil in this world? And one of the things they bought into very, very strongly is the idea that matter is evil. Anything physical and material is, by definition, evil. And so they were trying to devise a philosophical, theological system that would free God from any association with the material world, which was evil. They're trying to get God off the hook, in a sense. So, they're trying to resolve, bottom line, this idea of the origin of evil, and particularly to reconcile that with a God who is good. A fundamental question. So, let's look at their doctrine of God. Now, one of the things that, that I should also say that, that is, I guess, implicit in what I've already said, and that is that the Gnostics were dualists. This, this is something we need to be careful about. Dualism. They posited the existence of two worlds in absolute conflict. One was the world of spirit, and everything associated with that world was good. And then equally ultimate was the world of matter, and that was evil. So one of the fundamental presuppositions that pours into the idea of Gnosticism is what we call dualism. The belief of two equally ultimate powers, one good and one bad, one spiritual and one physical. Uh, yes, I'm going to get to how they describe They wouldn't call them spirits necessarily, but yes, I'll, I'll get to that. What I'm trying to get you to understand here is that they are dualists, and you don't understand Gnosticism unless you understand that they are dualists. Positing the, that the, those worlds are equal in power. The head of the good spiritual world is equal to the head of that. Basically, yes. Okay. That's what we mean by dualism. And let me just say this, just parenthetically, that I think there are lots of Christians today, those of you who were in my earlier class will know how strongly I feel about this, that I think that various forms of dualism infiltrate our evangelical circles. Sometimes we think that God and Satan are somehow on equal footing, and we're just waiting to see who will win the battle. Uh, subtle kinds of ideas like that, I think, I sense, circulate among even people we call evangelical Christians. And I think that is a, an absolutely anti-Christian idea. There is only one sovereign. There's only one almighty God. And that's the God of the Bible. All of this is very much at the same time. Bulgarian heresies. Bulgarian heresies. Bulgarian. <laughs> uh, well, this you know some of these ideas are in that 
that, that area, that geographical location. Okay, got the basic presupposition down, and I hope we understand that uh, dualism is, is ultimately antithetical to true Christianity. So, according to Gnostic theology, there is God, this unbegotten, incomprehensible being who is good. Valentius calls him the abyss. He's incomprehensible. And that's his word for this supreme being. The abyss. A-B-Y-S-S. When I think of the word abyss, I think of black hole. But he's trying to get at the idea that God cannot, that, that the supreme being uh, is incomprehensible. We can't define him. He's unapproachable. Uh, ineffable. And so Valentinius calls this being the abyss. Now, matter, things like passion and darkness have nothing to do with the abyss. There's no passion there. There's no darkness. And the Gnostic myth, as I call it, sort of after we, we acknowledge the existence of this abyss, there is a story of a fall, a fall in the heavenly realm. The heavenly realm is called the Pleroma. And the Pleroma represents the spiritual world, the world of fullness and light. And the world, the material world, is the Kenoma, the material world of emptiness and darkness. And these two worlds stand in eternal opposition to each other. But now in the Pleroma, there is a fall. What happens is that there are, in the Pleroma, a number of lesser deities called eons. A-E-O-N-S. And these eons emanate, and that's the word they want to use, it's a technical term, they emanate from the abyss. Now, what are eons? Well, they are divine attributes that are personified. And they emanate from the core of the abyss. They are deities. And they are very much associated with the various attributes of the supreme being called the abyss. And so you have these eons called mind, reason, wisdom, power. Those are the eons, those attributes of the abyss. But they seem to have some sort of, of being apart from the abyss. Uh, and each eon, this is a crucial point, each eon, as it emanates, as it is given birth by the abyss, is weaker and a little less divine, a little less spirit. 
each successive birth of an eon is a little bit weaker than the one preceding it. It's a crucial point. No, no, they not they do not reproduce each other. But but there are these eons coming out of the abyss. One comes out, and then another one comes out, and then another one comes out. It's not the case that the abyss produces an eon, and that eon then produces another eon, and then another eon produces another eon. It's not that. These are seem to be separate emanations from the abyss, and they are very much associated with various attributes of the abyss like mind power and wisdom well no no it's not exactly becoming more like the material world it's just a little it's, it's just a little weaker maybe the key word there this is crucial to get to this idea of a fall well they are spiritual yes because this, this is the world of spirits, the Pleroma. So they are spiritual beings. They are not physical beings in any sense. These are spiritual beings. Did you say there were four the no, no, I, I just named four as examples. Uh, different Gnostic theologians will give different numbers to these eons, how many came out. Anyway, now, some may want to know why. Is there any explanation as to why the abyss gave birth to these eons. Well, Valentinius says it was just love. He, this idea of self-revelation, of expressing oneself. So why? What's the explanation for, for giving birth to these eons? Well, Valentinius, for example, says it was just love. Other Gnostics wanted to say there was just some sort of absolute necessity. Uh, so you get different explanations as to why the abyss emanates eons. But there you have it. Okay. What happened is, is that in the Pleroma, one of, in fact, the last eon, and this one was called Wisdom or Sophia, she was the last eon. And as the last eon, she was also the weakest. The last and the weakest. And Sophia seems to have had uh, some sort of deep desire. Sophia, at some point, is seized with a passion to embrace the abyss. It's well, there's an incestuous kind of connotation in the desire of Sophia, the last eon and the weakest eon, to turn back and to embrace the abyss. And Sophia, in a moment of passion, leaps into the abyss. What's that? Uh, it's passion. She's, she's weaker and she's not supposed to have this, but there's, there it is. I'm not trying to say this, this myth is supposed to be coherent <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. So Sophia falls from the Pleroma. Yes? 
Does it? Well, <laughs> perhaps in some sense it is. I don't know. So Sophia falls from the divine realm. And sometimes in the various writers, this fall is pictured as the fall of a spark of light into the dark chaos of matter. And when this spark of light hits the, the kenoma, the matter, it animates this slumbering material world. This reminds you of Star Wars or something? <laughs> anyway, so when she falls out of the play Roma, the heavenly realm, Sophia, some picture this fall as a spark of light falling down into the darkness and the chaos of matter, slumbering matter. And because she is light, she animates this slumbering material world. And the kinoma comes to life. It's because of this fall of Sophia that this material world, our world, comes into existence. Now, she is not, Sophia is not the direct creator of this world. What happens is she gives birth to a creature called the Demiurge. The Demiurge. So far, there have been two main characters. The Abyss and Sophia, the last eon. And now the third major character is the Demiurge. Now, let me just give you some idea about this Demiurge. Valentius, for his concept of the Demiurge, this dark creature, the result of an incestuous and passionate embrace, there seems to be some analogy to Genesis 1-1 when it talks about the that over the earth was, a for, was formless and void. And the Demiurge, this offspring of Sophia, is described as this formless, dark, void kind of idea, the Demiurge. There is a sinister quality to the Demiurge. And it is the Demiurge that is the creator of this world. It's not clear. I mean, there is a... Uh, who is that? Uh, uh, abyss. The abyss. Uh, do they exist uh, the, same, the same time or not? Those, that abyss and this demiurge. Uh, yes, they come into, comes into existence. Mm-hmm. It's, it's what you have in this case is you have the abyss and Sophia. Sophia, in a moment of passion, embraces the abyss. Okay? As a result is the, 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 the birth of the demiurge. Okay? And that's the fall. Yes? Still very, very spirit, but, but of a different sort. Well, even weaker than Sophia. And, and there's also a sinister element here and, and a concern for matter. It is the demiurge that creates this world. Now, you see what they're trying to do? They're trying to separate God from the evil world. And they've had these two intermediaries. Sophia, the, the, the fallen eon, and 
the Demiurge, who is the creator of this world. No, no, the Kenoma was always in existence. It was just slumbering. The, uh, that's right. Very important. This world is not the same thing as the Kenoma. Uh, the, 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 the world, the, this world is a part of the Kenoma, but the Kenoma is bigger. It's the world of matter, material, substance. And it's out of this Kenoma that the Demiurge creates this material world, our world. But the Kenoma is more foundational. Yes, it's, it's eternal. Matter is eternal just as spirit is eternal. That's the dualism. Yes. Kind of molded it and sparked it into life. That's right. That's right. The Kenoma is, is the world of matter. But this is... The, the earth is created out of the Kenoma by the Demiurge. Well, what you see here is the synergism at work. Okay? There is the borrowing of Greek philosophy, mingling it with a little bit of Oriental religion, and a little sprinkle of the fallen eon. Does that sound anything like a fallen angel? So you have all of these kinds of ideas all poured into the blender, and out comes Gnosticism. Okay? <laughs> Why don't we go on here and try to get, get, get this picture all worked out. So the Demiurge is the one who created this world. Now here's uh, something we need to appreciate as far as the Gnostics are concerned. Right, let me make, make this one thing very clear. The Demiurge is not the creator of matter. Matter is eternal. But this world was created. Okay. Now here's the kicker, or one of the kickers. Gnosticism specifically identifies the Demiurge with Yahweh of the Old Testament. The Gnostics identified the Demiurge and their mythology with Jehovah of the Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament. Again, the blender is going around and it's, and it's bringing little bits and pieces from Christianity Greek philosophy and Oriental religions back here. So, question? Uh, yeah, we're going to see some of these same ideas come up again. That's right. Yes. So, we need to keep one thing in mind as we think about this this Gnostic myth, and that is that the Gnostics distinguish between the Supreme God and the God who created this world. Okay? Cle clearly, write that down on your, on your, in your notes. The, the Supreme God is not the same one who created this world. This world was created by a lesser, sinister being called the Demiurge. And, and that's the, that they also they identify the Demiurge as Jehovah. You can see the point, can't you? If theodicy is the main motivation, they're trying to create a system where they can put as much distance between the good God, the God of light, and this evil world. 
And this is the, what they've devised. Now, there are some differences among Gnostics about the character of this demiurge. Uh, he's always slightly sinister. Not, not, not the complete embodiment of evil, but there's a sinister, there's a dark side to him. Uh, some of the uh, Gnostics want to see him as a purely insolent uh, being who, who, who fights against uh, the abyss. Others want to see him sort of uh, as someone who mildly rebels against the abyss, but sort of had, goes ahead and does the bidding of the abyss in, in the final analysis. So there are various uh, interpretations of the character of the Demiurge, but always a sinister kind of side. We just uh, looked at the theology of Gnosticism, and the first thing we looked at basically was the doctrine of God. And if that wasn't bizarre, now we come to the doctrine, their doctrine, their Christology, their doctrine of Christ. Well, I'll, I'll let you judge. Let's see. The same dualism that was inherent in the theology is also very much evident in their conception of Christ. Now, if there's anything that's clear, it is that they are somewhat confused about the person of Christ. But the one thing that all Gnostics agree on is that he was not God incarnate, in whom both the human and divine natures are united. They all agree that he was not God incarnate, human and divine, in one person. Well, who is Christ according to the Gnostics? Christ was the chief eon. The eon closest to the abyss. Christ is the chief eon. The eon most like the abyss. Now, after Sophia fell out of the Pleroma, it's pretty clear that Sophia felt bad, felt badly about what she had done. And she longs for redemption, restoration to the Pleroma. And the Christ Eon took pity on Sophia. And so the Christ Eon in this whole myth is the Redeemer, plays the role of the Redeemer, the chief Eon Christ. This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.